Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, depending on where you're listening. Welcome back to AI and the Future of Work. This is your host, Dan Turchin, advisor at Insight Finder, the system of intelligence for IT operations, and CEO of PeopleRain, the AI platform for IT and HR employee service. Thanks again to all of our loyal listeners for helping us turn this passion project into one of the most downloaded podcasts about the future of work. If you like what we do, please like, comment, and share in your favorite podcast app. We read all of the reviews and we enjoy most of them. We may even share your review in a future episode. Now, we recently met three outstanding entrepreneurs who graduated from the Alchemist Accelerator program. Chiro and Jacopo shared their journey productizing semantic search for online fashion brands at Tussauds up until they were acquired by Cuveo. Philip from Stories shared his journey developing AI to extract insights from large documents to help coach employees. Stories was acquired by Workday. We will link to both of those episodes in the show notes. And the common thread binding Tussauds, Stories, and many other amazing companies is the Alchemist Accelerator, the enterprise-focused mentoring platform for startups that has graduated more than 300 companies and helped those companies raise an astonishing $1.2 billion. Alchemist was started by Ravi Balani in 2012. We are lucky today to be joined by one of the catalysts behind Alchemist's growth. Rachel Chalmers was a journalist and analyst at places like 451 Research before entering the world of investing and advising. She's been selecting and mentoring entrepreneurs at Alchemist since 2018. We've got a unique opportunity today to learn about trends in pre-seed investing. Consider this a window into maybe the next decade of disruptive technologies. Full disclosure, I'm a mentor to Alchemist companies and have invested in several, including Tuso. Without further ado, Rachel, it's my pleasure to welcome you to the podcast. Why don't you share a little bit about your background and uh, how you got into the space? Thanks so much, Dan. It's a pleasure to be on the show. I am a failed English professor, as you can probably hear from my accent. I grew up in Australia. I couldn't get away from the beaches and the sunshine fast enough. I I really wanted to spend my life sitting in a a book-lined room reading. I was lucky enough to be accepted to Trinity College Dublin, which still has a phenomenal master's program in Anglo-Irish literature. Um, another graduate of that program, David Benioff, went on to be the showrunner for Game of Thrones, so I am definitely the least accomplished of, of the alumni. Um, Trinity was just a transformative experience. Um, the, the literature department there is, is fantastic. My professor, Brown, uh, was uh, just wonderful. Um, but I ended up not becoming an English professor because during the 1994 World Cup game between Ireland and Norway, which Ireland won, my complete disinterest in sports reasserted itself uh, as we were watching the show in a friend's apartment. Um, He was one of the friends I'd met through uh, Trinity's fabled student computing resource group, which maintained the the, um, bank of of deck vax machines uh, underneath the, the Trinity building. And so I picked up a magazine from from Mike's floor to to ease the tedium of watching soccer. Uh, And it was this amazing perfect bound magazine in uh, bright orange with lime green text on it. And I started reading and I realized I was not gonna become an English professor anymore. I was gonna go to San Francisco and write about technology for a living. Rachel, I told you we wouldn't do much post-production editing, but I've gotta say that term 
easing the tedium of watching soccer as, as a lifelong player and fan uh, hurt me. All right. So, uh, so maybe a little bit of post-production editing. Would that be okay? Of course. I, I am now a super fan of Ted Lasso. So uh, the universe has had comic revenge. And it played a pivotal role in, in who you are today. It so, uh, and I might note that uh, for those who are only listening to this via an audio podcast, that Rachel does in fact sit in front of a book-lined uh, wall of shelves. So that, that part <laughs> of your vision you achieved. Well, R Rachel, I followed your work when you were an analyst at 451 Research. So maybe this is a question out of, uh, out of personal curiosity, but how did your role as an analyst in a previous life contribute to what you do today at Alchemist? Oh, in every conceivable way. It was a wonderful job. It was, it was 13 years of um, creative destruction with some of the smartest people I've ever worked with. Um, the founders of 451, uh, John Abbott, Nick Patience, Simon Carruthers, and William Fellows, are, are just extraordinary um, repositories of industry knowledge and, and really taught me how to write and how to report and how to think. Um, just a couple of examples, uh, we had a burn rate rule of thumb. Uh, which is still a pretty accurate way to gauge when a startup is going to need to raise more money or fly into a mountain. Uh, you calculate months from the last announcement of fundraising. Um, you allocate about 25,000 per full-time employee per month. Uh, and you subtract that from the, the amount of the fundraise. And that's going to be when the startup runs out of money. And it's so simple and very few people ever do it. And it's remarkably accurate. It's, it's just a very simple uh, way of figuring out where a startup is in its trajectory. But more generally, uh, in those 13 years, I wrote um, over a million words and I covered 1,052 startups, uh, of which about a quarter were acquired um, and the acquisitions could be anything from a fire sale to ZenSource getting picked up for 500 million, which was infinity times trailing 12-month revenue. But of those 1,052 startups, exactly eight made it to IPO. So it was really like down at the coalface of innovation, really looking at what it took for a company to go from Diane Green and, and Mendelssohn working out of a garage to, to becoming VMware. And I was the first analyst to cover VMware and Cloudera and Splunk. Um, but I was also the first analyst to cover a thousand companies you've never heard of. And just paying attention to that and paying attention to what the differences were has really informed everything I've done in my subsequent career. Rachel, we've done 80 episodes and nobody has talked about the startup burn rate rule of thumb. So uh, congrats. You've got the dubious distinction. <laughs> <laughs> so these days, uh, you, know, you, you covered 1,052 startups. They're uh, even more than that looking for funding these days and looking for launch strategies. Tell our listeners what's unique about the Alchemist approach. Uh, well, as you know, um, Alchemist is basically a bunch of people that work around and with Ravi because of Ravi's unique character. He, uh, he is a hyper-connected node. He is somebody that um, is incredibly positive without tolerating mediocrity. He's, he's very, very good at criticizing the work without criticizing the person. Um, and so he's created this remarkable non-toxic environment around him and in the program that he's put together. I call it human-centered innovation. You know, when I found human-centered design as a practice, I fell on it with glad cries because 
as a practice, it distills a lot of things that I'd sort of been groping towards through my career without being able to articulate them. So human-centered design is very much at the center of what we do in Alchemist X, the corporate and government services division of Alchemist that I run. Um, but more generally, I describe Alchemist's competitive advantage as human-centered innovation. You know, let's let machines do all the stuff that machines are good at, repetitive tasks, simple pattern recognition. Let's double down on humans for the stuff that humans are good at, the squishy stuff, nuance and complexity and judgment and discrimination in, in the sense of being able to tell what's mediocre from what's excellent. So the acceptance rate at Alchemist, I know, is astronomically low and the quality bar is astronomically high. That's um, my fault. I stood on admission. Sorry. <laughs> you get credit for that. I want to know about a team that you met recently that just blew you away, that you said, these are alchemist entrepreneurs. What was it about them that blew you away? And to the extent you can share, who were they? I'm not going to pick an alchemist company, if that's okay. I'm going to pick a company that I invested in uh, when I was with Marion Ventures. Um, it's Honeycomb, uh, Charity Majors and Christine Yen. Uh, I met Charity through mutual friends. She's one of the folks that, that came from Second Life. There's this whole generation of incredibly kick-ass women entrepreneurs uh, who were trained at Second Life. I was never particularly impressed with Second Life as a company, but as a cohort, they are extraordinary. And uh, Charity and I got together for a drink at the Elbow Room on Valencia. Uh, and two hours later, we were still talking and we're still talking. We haven't stopped. She is, you know, she's a polymath. She has half a degree in music from the University of Idaho. She came from circumstances, which I do as well. But most importantly, she's, she's an extraordinary systems thinker and storyteller. So we had a ton to talk to, uh, about. We still do. But I'm firmly of the belief that people create the software that distills who they are as a person. So my joke here is that Linus created Git um, and Charity created Honeycomb. And what Honeycomb is, is a way of telling stories about incredibly complex systems, understandable, human processable stories. For those of you who aren't familiar with that, Honeycomb was one of the first companies in the observability space, which is what Charity described it as, pulling a, a term out of mechanical systems engineering. Um, and it's a, a columnar data store, and it allows you to make ad hoc queries against planetary scale systems. So it's based on a tool called Scuba, which was developed within Facebook, where Charity works worked at the time. So when she left, she, she basically re-implemented a next generation Scuba. And it's kind of a, a, a Splunk in many variants. If you can imagine the impact of Splunk when, when it first became possible to grep logs across distributed systems, suddenly every sysadmin was 10 times better at their job and they had the next five years of their career handed to them. Well, now log search is, is inadequate for the, the sheer scale of the kinds of systems we're talking about. The, the complexity of these systems has gone beyond what any human brain can, can, can accommodate. And so you can't build tests, you can't have standard queries because the behavior that you're trying to diagnose is emergent. And so you need to be able to ask questions across these systems. And that's what Honeycomb lets you do. And what it is for SREs like Liz Fong Jones who left Google to, to join the company is the next Splunk. It gives you the next five years of your career. It makes you look like a genius. It makes intractable problems tractable. So. Charity to me is the model of an entrepreneur. 
and I dragged her in front of the, the general manager of the, the investment firm I was working for at the time. And the rest of the team had totally bought into the vision and was ready to invest. And the general manager said, just doesn't seem like an entrepreneur to me. So I, I, I didn't last very long at that particular company. Kudos to you for recognizing greatness early on. I've had a charity on panels in the past that I've hosted. She is effervescent and unpredictable. Never quite know what's going to come out of her mouth. We haven't, though, had her on a guest on this podcast, so that, uh, that may need to change. In your description of the alchemist culture, kind of you know, this, this culture that Ravi's built, you really describe what I consider the future of work, which is this kind of harmonious fusion of humans and machines. What I'd like to know is outside of Alchemist or even perhaps outside of Honeycomb, what's an example of an Alchemist company that you feel like is best defining the future of work? It's got to be Launch Darkly. So again, Launch Darkly is a manifestation of its creator's character and Edith Harbour, another person you should have on the show if you haven't already, um, runs the Western States Trail for fun. Now I do equestrian. I don't hate all sports. I like them if they've got horses involved. So there's a, an endurance race called the Tevez Cup where you get on a fast Arabian horse and you race over 50 miles of trail. Edith runs it on foot. And we keep having this conversation. I keep saying, you can let a horse do that for you. But, but Edith loves ultra marathoning. She's, she's one of the brightest engineers out of Harvey Mudd. She ran large-scale systems for years. Um, she's also just a really, really good egg. Um, she sees the best in everybody. She's a very positive person. And what Launch Darkly does is feature flagging as a service. It's a, a feature management platform now. But what it lets you do is push code into production. And if that code breaks the whole system, turn off the flag, reboot it, everything comes back up. Sounds really simple, but what it does is it instantiates blamelessness. It means that when you have a postmortem, the problem is already fixed. No one blames anyone for experimenting because that's how we get to new ideas. Everybody can maintain the system and can test in production without breaking things. It, it makes work safe. It gives psychological guardrails um, that let people bring their best selves to work. Talk us through what's hard about starting an enterprise B2B company today. We all know that infrastructure is cheaper, compute, storage, we can rent TPUs. So one could argue that versus a decade or two decades ago, a lot of the complexity of starting a high-tech company has been eliminated or at least reduced. What are the really hard parts that remain? Getting heard above the noise. And I'll even double down on that and say, the, the way that we fund startup companies right now does not necessarily reward merit over simplistic kinds of pattern matching. People who went to Stanford, people who look like Mark Zuckerberg, you know, in, in Paul Graham's famous formulation. Charity is a, a perfect example of someone who didn't go to Stanford, doesn't look like Mark Zuckerberg, um, has just unbounded talent and vision and insight and is 10 years into the future compared to the rest of us. And I was literally sitting in the room when the former CFO of Microsoft shook his head and says, doesn't seem like a, a, a CEO to me. I think venture capital 
wants to perpetuate itself, which is a totally human and understandable mechanism. People who succeeded because um, they had family money, they they had a network from college and they were able to raise from that network, um, don't necessarily see that what was easy for them was hard for other people, not because of intrinsic merit, but because of circumstance. And they don't want to examine the foundations of their own self-esteem. And so it's hard to be heard above the noise, even if you're Steve from Stanford with a really good idea in enterprise software. If you're Stephanie, it's 20 times harder, literally. Only 4% of of venture capital last year went to to women-led enterprises. If you're a person of color, whether male or female, your chances are, are far, far lower again. We're in Silicon Valley. It's, it's one of the most uh, densely populated Latina communities in the world. How many Latina startup founders do you know? How many black startup founders do you know out of Oakland? The answer is very, very few. Do we seriously believe that all talent in the world is concentrated in white men? I don't. I think we're leaving a huge amount of ingenuity and potential solutions to our existential problems on the table because we're not willing to take the self-esteem hit it would take to say, in my case, my parents were able to send me overseas to to do uh, graduate school. I I had incredible opportunities that certainly my mother never had. And that was partly because I'm white and partly because we had a little bit of inherited wealth. If, If we don't acknowledge that complicity in an unjust system, then we perpetuate it. So Rachel, yesterday, we're, we're, by the way, we're recording this the first week of August 2021. Yesterday was uh, Black Women's Equal Pay Day. The date, sounds like you're aware of it. Yeah, the date in 2021 when a Black female wage earner would earn as much as her male counterpart earned in 2020. (laughs) Pathetic. So what's it going to take to break down some of these societal boundaries that prevent more Ediths and charities or perhaps Latinx or Black Ediths and charities from feeling like they have equal access to uh, the, the, the resources, the funding, the opportunities that we have. I, I wish I had an easy answer for you. I wish there was one thing that we could all do, you know, turn our Instagram squares black and, and suddenly we fix racism. It, it, it's not going to happen. There is a lot of work going on within the system. Arlen Hamilton, uh, Frida Kapor, um, all of the folks at Project Include, including um, Ellen Powell, who worked at Kleiner Perkins, and, and Bethany Blunt, um, who is another of the, the Second Lab Extraordinary, Second Life Extraordinary Women who um, founded Compass. So lots happening within the existing structure of venture capital, trying to, to create more access. The funding sources are also starting to subtly shift as well, uh, with the sovereign wealth funds looking to pull out of, of extractive industries and carbon industries. Um, there's a lot more interest and a lot more cash available to, to venture. What's challenging there from the point of view of folks trying to fundraise is even though there's all of this wealth available, um, the information arbitrage hasn't caught up with it yet. So the sovereign wealth funds see through the lens of Silicon Valley. They see, you know, the same roster of, of expected uh, suspects that, that they've always seen. Um, meanwhile, you have this proliferation of, of entrepreneurs from all kinds of different backgrounds because the barriers to entry have fallen. 
uh, but they're not able to, to reach those sources of wealth. So this actually creates a really fortunate situation for alchemists where um, we're able to work with governments from, from different regions, including regions that are less, less wealthy. We're able to identify um, entrepreneurs from underrepresented backgrounds who are really promising, and we're able to connect them into some of those sources of wealth. Um, so that's been a real en engine driving our business and a, a real mission for us. So in this show, we talk about AI and the future of work. And one of the things that I think is disturbing about at least the pitches I hear these days is everyone's an AI company. At one point, everyone was a cloud company. At one point, everyone was a, a mobile social company. When you hear pitches and the entrepreneur leads with they're an AI company, um, first off, what does that mean to you? And second, um, how do you uh, how do you strip companies you know of that uh, cliche and and uh, and uncover what the true power of the technology is while avoiding that kind of uh, that kind of buzzword? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm literally old enough that that what they're calling AI today is what they called statistics when I went to school. AI means two things to me, you know, uh, in a company name, it means that the .ai domain was available. In a, a description of, of the technology, it's almost always automated pattern recognition. And the way you figure out what exactly they're talking about is the same journalistic technique that I built my career on. You just ask dumb questions. You just don't mind looking foolish. And you say, what algorithm exactly are you using? How does that work? You know, what's the input? What's the output? How is it better than other algorithms that do similar things? What's the performance advantage? Does it outperform human judgment? Does it scale better? You know, just very simple questions. Ask questions like you're five. It's disarming. And because I'm a woman and I have a funny accent, no one expects better of me anyway. Uh, and you find a lot of stuff out. We also casually throw around terms like AI ethics and responsible AI, which while are incredibly important concepts, I find certainly from hosting this show that they're, they're poorly defined and you know, it, it's just too easy to use those terms without having a nuanced discussion about what they mean. Um, in light of your quite savvy answers about what is AI and you know, the challenges of growing an enterprise startup, I'd love to get your perspective on what does it mean to, quote, practice responsible AI? I am the very fortunate beneficiary of a, a decades-long conversation about this with, among other people, Kate Crawford uh, at Microsoft Research, who is the author of The Atlas of AI. As a feminist, as a fairly active and outspoken feminist in the industry for the last 20 years at least, um, it's always been self-evident uh, to women that algorithms are not value neutral, um, that software literally instantiates the personality and the prejudices of the person who creates it. If you're Edith, you can create compassionate software. If you're IBM during Nazi Germany, you can create software that literally makes it possible to identify Jewish people to be transported to the camps. Another book I've read that was hugely, hugely influential in how I think about this is Seeing Like a State, which talks about mechanisms like calendars and uh, standard time as ways 
to exercise power. So we think about things like time zones as, as value neutral, but the, the prime meridian runs through Greenwich and it runs through Greenwich because the British empire ruled an empire on which the sun never set. And it was able to administer that empire by standardizing time zones in Greenwich. We have a calendar which is based on the imperial calendar of Rome. We put the gender or the assumed gender of children on birth certificates, which are filed with the government, because all of these ways of categorizing and chopping up time and, and characterizing humans and, and mapping land are ways of exercising power over those humans in that land. They're technologies of empire. AI tech are the latest manifestations of empire. And we have to be unimpeachably honest with ourselves and, and with the users of our software about our intentions, even in gathering information, even in gathering information that appears benign because it's not, you know, that the current fight over trans rights demonstrates that even as simple a thing as, as putting a child's assigned gender on its birth certificate is anything but benign. It's a mechanism of control. It's a way for the state to argue with an individual about who their self is. And so I, I don't use AI ethics lightly at all. We, we just, um, started setting up a new program to, for, for AI and ML startups. And, and my first requirement was we have to have a budget line item for a data ethicist. Transcendent and brilliant. Rachel Chalmers, 2024, you got my vote. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm not a natural born citizen. You can't you make that me. Rule. <laughs> so history is in fact the, uh, the propaganda of the victor. Uh, you, you said something I thought was very poignant earlier. Venture capital wants to perpetuate itself. Uh, so profound. Um, so in light of your comments about responsible AI, what are you and Ravi and the team doing to perhaps break that cycle in venture capital? Ah, well, I go on a lot of podcasts and I rant about it. <laughs> uh, we do collect data on, you know, optional. It, it, it's opt-in data, but we do track the data of um, underrepresented founders who apply to all of our programs, uh, the corporate and government programs, as well as Alchemist itself. Uh, we don't deliberately put our thumb on the scale. We're, we're not doing affirmative action. But when we count how many Black and Latinx and, and female founders we admit into a program, it makes us more conscious of our biases. It makes us more conscious that maybe it's easier to give a higher score to Steve from Stanford. And, and maybe we should do another pass on those admissions and make sure we're really judging startups as they deserve to be judged. I mean, it's really simple, absolutely basic cognitive bias hygiene, but only by doing that work at the level of habit does it come into muscle memory. So a decade ago, you tracked 1,052 companies and now you're investing in a bunch of amazing ones. Uh, but yeah, the, the world's your oyster. You're in a, a fascinating place at a fascinating time. Polish your crystal ball and tell me 10 years from now, you and I are sitting back having a version of this conversation and you've achieved everything you wanted to have achieved in the last decade. What, what accomplishment are you most proud of? Workplaces are centered around humans. 
software is recognized for the automated pattern recognition beast that it is. It's entrusted with all of the chores that are too tedious and too repetitive to be worth a human's attention. And humans are free to do stuff that software doesn't do very well, like make art and raise children and comfort the dying. Imagine a future where we don't depend on extractive industries and polluting energy sources and allow every person to become the most excellent version of themselves that they can be. When you've achieved all that, will you promise me that you'll come back and we'll do another version of this? Absolutely. <laughs> I would be delighted. <laughs> well, we're about out of time, Rachel. It just flew by. I really enjoyed this. But uh, I'm going to ask you one last question. I've got two kids, uh, two girls, uh, almost 12 and almost 14. And uh, they're going to listen to this podcast and be inspired. What would you tell them about the world that they're entering in terms of uh, college, career? Why should they have high expectations or why should they feel like no glass ceiling exists? There are two things that have happened over the course of my long life that give me real, genuine, deeply felt hope. I was born the year, a couple of years after the Stonewall riots. And in my lifetime, queer rights have, have gone from something that you had to throw rocks at the police about to something you still sometimes have to throw rocks at the police about to, but also, you know, a, a state recognized institution of marriage. And for all of my queer friends, that's been transformative and, and trans rights are now the leading edge of that battle. And what trans rights are to me, are, you know, going back to that birth certificate issue, the freedom of an individual to express their own sense of identity in a way that will be recognized by the state. The other huge change that's happened over the course of my lifetime, I was also born a couple of years after the referendum, which gave Aboriginal Australians the right to vote. Up until that referendum, Aboriginal people had been uh, managed by the government department that was also responsible for wildlife. Over the course of my life, native title has been recognized in an incredibly limited and flawed way. But talking about indigenous rights is far more mainstream now than when I was a child. When I was a child, it was almost unspeakable. And to me, indigenous rights are the sanctity of a human's relationship with land, with the earth on which we live. So my advice to your children would be to hold those two relationships most precious, your relationship with yourself and your relationship with your environment. You have a responsibility to nurture both. And the decisions you make that are in their best interests will make the world better. As a dad, I thank you on behalf of my kids, and I hope a lot of other parents and a lot of other kids are listening to this and they'll be inspired. If that is what you call a rant, Rachel, please rant more. <laughs> and, uh, and when you're ready for a campaign manager, please call me. Rachel, what's the best way for our listeners to follow your work? As it happens, I have a podcast of my own. Uh, it's about corporate innovation. 
Um, but it's turned out to be essentially about the future of work. We have very similar conversations there that, that we have here. It's called Alchemist X Innovators Inside, and it's available wherever fine podcasts are sold. Excellent. Thank you. Well, gosh, this, uh, this flew by, but Rachel, we're, we're out of time. Uh, thanks so much for coming by and hanging out. This is great. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you, Dan. Dan Turchin, your host of AI and the Future of Work, signing off for this week, but uh, back next week with another fascinating guest. <laughs>